It's uh, been a little while since I've had the uh, awesome privilege and responsibility of sharing God's Word with you here at Grace Covenant. So for those of you who are new and don't know who I am, um, I'll just simply introduce myself by saying my name is Ken. I am a retired Army chaplain and a retired teaching elder in the Presbyterian Church of America. So it's an honor to be with you this morning. Um, because I'm preaching this passage out of Ephesians, not as a part of a series, I think it's important for us to briefly examine its context before I jump into it. Paul's overall purpose in the book of Ephesians is to reveal God's eternal redemptive plan accomplished through our identification and union with Christ and manifested in a unified and radically transformed body of believers, his church. The unity of the body along with love are key themes in the book of Ephesians. True unity is realized when God's people demonstrate selfless love, Christ-like love to one another. One commentator notes, selfless love makes for the peaceful unity of the body that is characterized by oneness and organization, hope, belief, and identification, and an identification reflecting the oneness of the Godhead. And that can clearly be seen in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, which is the immediate context for the passage that I'll be opening up to you today. So our text is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 16. Hear the word of God. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led, captives, led hosts of captives, and he gave gifts to me. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he has also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we attain, all of us attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Let's pray. O oh God, by your Spirit, tell us what we need to hear and show us what we ought to do to obey the love of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. In his book, Side by Side, a book that maybe some of you read in recent, recent months because it came out about a year ago, Counselor Ed Welch proposes that those who help the best are those who need help and give help. And that a healthy community is dependent on all of us being both. A healthy community is dependent on all of us being people who recognize we need help but also being willing to give help to others. There are no unnecessary persons in the body of Christ. We are mutually dependent on one another, and as we will see as we unpack this passage this morning, through the grace and enabling power we receive from the ascended Christ, each one of us is enabled to perform our part in the growth of the body. Now here's the bottom line. If you walk away with nothing else this Sunday morning, here's the bottom line. Unity comes through maturity in Christ. And that maturity comes as the body of Christ is built up through grace-gifted leaders who equip every member 
to use their grace gifts to mutual ministry with one another. Now let's consider the details. How does the church actualize in practice the unity we share in Christ? We already have a union with Christ. We're going to celebrate it uh, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper a little while from now. But when we all become believers in Christ, we have that union with him and therefore are unified also with one another. But how do we actually put that into practice in a practical way in the body? We will consider four truths, for those of you taking notes, about how God creates unity through maturity. First, Christ gives grace gifts to every member of the body. Paul begins his argument in verses 7 through 10 by reminding us that it is a crucified and resurrected Christ who gives gifts to his people. Christ is the gift giver whose death on the cross, vindicated by his resurrection and ascension, not only purchased our redemption from sin and death, but he also provided spiritual gifts to be used for his glory. Paul cites Psalm 68, which uses the image of God ascending his throne to receive gifts and honor after defeating his enemies. Like a victorious ancient king, the ascended Christ is in the position to dispense gifts to his subjects. He has all rule, power, and authority to dispense the gifts that he has purchased by his victory over sin and death and the principalities and powers of this world. To deny these gifts is to deny the grace of God and the power of Christ's resurrection. And all of us have been there at some point. We just don't feel like we have anything to give to Christ's body. But when we do that, we're actually denying the grace of God that he's given to us through the power of Christ's resurrection. The Lord gives every believer a measure of grace, an enabling power that is at work in us and shows itself by the way we live out the gospel. The measure of this grace is based solely on God's sovereign design, not on our merit, not on our preferences or our natural abilities. God uses those things, certainly. Included in this grace are specific spiritual gifts through which we minister for Christ. As Peter writes in his first epistle, as each one has received a special gift, employ it to serving one another. These gifts are not necessarily limited, I believe, to the list of gifts that are given in the New Testament. Each believer is given a measure of grace to use their gift according to God's plan. And that plan takes into consideration our personality, our background, and a range of other circumstances. Nor is the specific gift limited to only one category of giftedness. It may be a unique combination of one or more areas of giftedness in our lives. The bottom line is that every believer has at least one spiritual gift, if not more, given by God's grace. Now, we may not be able to label it. That is, we may not be able to put a name to it because it's a unique combination of the way God gifts us, but nonetheless, we have them, each of us. We may not appear, it may not appear to us that they're the most glorious gifts either. You know, the ones that people always think of, you know, when you're up front doing things, or, uh, you know, when you're vi some more visible gifts. Some of the friends that I uh, have had that I value greatly in their giftedness have been those people who have gifts that hardly anybody ever sees, like the gift of prayer, a friend of mine who has that gift. God would wake him up in the middle of the night. He'd be praying for people. He had no clue why he was praying for them. And come to find out days later that he was praying because God decided to use him as a channel and woke him up, put in his heart to pray. He prayed. God moved. And that prayer, when those prayers were answered. Or 
How many of you have been the recipient of someone with a gift of helps who prefers not to be known uh, and well-known because of, as a pastor, a friend of mine, or a professor used to say, when somebody would recognize the, something that he had done, he said, he, I said, well, well there goes my, there goes my uh, crown in heaven. Because, you know, he, he said, I'd rather be recognized by the Lord Jesus Christ when I get there than to be recognized by all the people who I've helped over, over time. That's the most important thing. Every Christian is a part of the team. And if we don't use our gifts properly, then the work of the body suffers to that degree. These individual gifts of the Spirit are vital to the growth of the body. But they aren't the only gifts that Christ has given the church. A second truth about how God creates unity through maturity is that grace-gifted leaders equip the body for mutual ministry. In verse 11, Paul shifts from the giftedness of all Christians to a few specific leadership gifts given to the body with a specific purpose. He names four leadership gifts exercised for the sake of the whole church. Uh, with, while these are not the only leadership gifts in the church, they are the ones focused primarily, I believe, on teaching and equipping in the church. The first two, apostles and prophets, were foundational gifts with particular relevance to the early church. I don't believe those gifts as offices are still available to us in the church today, but I do believe that the functions of those gifts still occur in the body through the other gifts that we will talk about in a minute. Well, one of those gifts is the gift of evangelism. Not everyone is called to the ministry of evangelism. But the evangelist is one who possesses a special ability to communicate, communicate the gospel to non-believers. In the Presbyterian Church in America, when we ordain certain uh, men to go to certain places where the gospel is, a, is destitute, where there isn't a, a large gospel witness, whether that's overseas in a mission context, or like in my case in the military, we're given what they call the power of evangelists because we're recognized by, by the presbytery, the bodies that send us, that we have the ability and the call to communicate the gospel to a non-believing setting where there may not be other elders, which is the ideal way to do this, next to us, side by side, to pray for us and encourage us. The pastor-teacher, on the other hand, has two primary roles. As the pastor, he's responsible for the nurture, protection, and the supervision of the flock. He is a shepherd. It's the one we think about when we think of the term pastor. We think of the term and concept or image of shepherd. A teacher, he's responsible for the effective proclamation and explanation of God's word. He's a disciple-maker. Teaching others to obey all that Christ commanded. Should sound familiar to you? In the Great Commission, Matthew 28. Both of these roles have a more specific purpose, and in verse 12, Paul goes to the heart of the matter here. Christ gives gifted leaders to his church for the purpose of equipping the saints, all his people, for mutual ministry to one another. Leaders are not commissioned to do all the work for the people. We are not, as one friend of mine says, hired guns. We're not, we're not the ones who come in, you pay us, and we do all this stuff for you. Okay? We do things. We have a calling, and we'll talk about that. But we're not commissioned to do all the work for the people. I know so many pastors get burned out. You know, the average pastor, I think, stays in a, in a pulpit or in the, in the ministry for about five to six years, I think is the average I read recently. Uh, they get burned out, a lot of them. A lot of my friends who are in the ministry went to seminary with me are no longer in the ministry because they burned out on the way. Maybe because they thought they had to do it all. But their primary function is to prepare and train God's people, all of us, to do God's work. Now, there is a distinction made between pastors and Christians in the New Testament. However, the difference is one of calling 
giftedness and service, not a distinction of ministry versus non-ministry. It's not that, you know, Dennis and Camper and Ben and uh, myself and Taylor and the rest of us, you know, we all get to do the ministry uh, that you pay us to do, and you don't. The ministry of the body of Christ belongs to all of us. And in fact, we only have contact with a handful of people in the church and a handful of people in the community where you have, you have a network that extends way beyond the doors of this church in terms of your influence, both with God's people and with those who don't know the Lord. Our primary function is to prepare and train God's people to do God's work. Now, all of God's people are to be equipped, prepared, trained as ministers of the gospel. And in a local church, that equipping work primarily belongs to those called to be pastor, teachers, elders in a local congregation. Commentator Arnold summarizes it well. He says, the resurrected Christ has bestowed his grace on every member of his body. But he has especially gifted certain individuals within the community to establish churches, minister the word of God, and equip others for the service of the church. Christ gives these gifted leaders to the church not to do the ministry for the various members of the body while they passively receive, but to help prepare each one of them to actively serve in ways he has gifted them. It seems so clear. I mean, you look at it and say, yeah. Seems so clear. Seems obvious. But how have we, for the most part, gotten so far off course? There are a number of reasons. Let me just suggest two. Now, in some cases, those in church leadership are afraid to trust men and women with significant ministry. That's not the case here in Grace. If God calls you to do something and, uh, and you ask those in the, power of the, in the leadership to, to equip you, they're not afraid for you to go out and do ministry. There's ministries that pop up all over the place. More, more commonly, there is a reluctance on the part of men and women to trust themselves as authentic ministers of Christ. As ministers of the body, there's a misunderstanding of how God set up the ministry in the body of Christ to begin with, which is what Paul is dealing here in this passage. The most vibrant churches I know, and I've had a chance to visit many over my years and my travels in the, mil in the military, the most vibrant churches I know equip their members to be ministers of the gospel. It doesn't happen through the latest spiritual fad or program. You can always find something in a box somewhere. Somebody will sell you. It doesn't always happen that way. And it doesn't rest entirely on the leaders. It happens when men and women are willing to heed God's commands and seek to be discipled by the gifted leaders that God has equipped, given to equip his church. Sometimes at places where I've been pastor of a congregation in the military setting, I have actually challenged the people in my, in my congregation. I said, listen, the best thing you could do for me is if you feel that God wants you to be equipped to do ministry, you need to come challenge me to equip you. Do you know how many people I had take me up on that? Not a lot. A few. A few. Making disciples is at the heart of the mission of the church. It's at the heart of the Great Commission. Equipping men and women for the exercise of mutual ministry so that they might grow more like Christ and help others to do the same. It involves everything that goes on in the church. The worship that we do this morning. The small groups in which many of you participate. The, the service teams that some of you are involved in. The various, various ways in which you're connected to this body. 
there are all ways in which we disciple one another. Yeah, we make it much more complex than it should be. There is a one-on-one kind of discipleship that takes place. I've been involved in that all throughout my military career and my pastor before that and continue to be. But sometimes we make it more complex than it should be. That's why we say, well, it's easier for them to do it. You know, yeah, making disciples thing, you know, that must be like what the, I forget who it was that preached a couple months ago. Um, I think it was Ron Pohl's son who was up here saying it's, uh, you know, it's, it's easier for let, let somebody else to think it's like a super Christian. You know, the disciple makers are the ones up here. And for the rest of us, we're just not, you're just not into that or just not capable of doing that. But he said, yeah, it's not, not the way it's supposed to be. All of us are makers of disciples and disciples at the same time. I like how Colin Marshall and Tony Payne describe it in their book, The Vine Project. It's a sequel to The Vine and the Trellis, which some of you have read because it's been passed around. I know the elders, some of the elders have read it. And this is what they say. He said, if the goal of Christian ministry can be envisioned simply as helping any individual person we know take one step to the right, that is, toward Christ or toward maturity in Christ, then this is a task that each and every Christian can embrace with confidence. Right? If we think of disciple-making as simply taking, helping one person move a little closer to Christ or towards maturity in Christ, I think that's something that all of us as Christians can buy into. And we do it all the time. We do it with all those one another texts in the, in, the, in the scriptures. Love one another. Serve one another. You can add a list to, onto that list because many of you know that list. Some of you may even memorize that list of one another passages. We must see ourselves as vital channels through whom God mediates his grace to other members of the body and to the community around us. Each one of us. Each one of us. There are no unnecessary persons. And it's like going back to... Uh, Ed Welch's comment, we're all helpers and help the and needy people at the same time. And those people who are the, recognize they're the needy ones are oftentimes the best helpers. And I think all of us here recognize that we're needy. So we celebrate when we worship that just the need that we have in the gospel. If we didn't have a need, there wouldn't be any need for the gospel of grace. But we all have a need. Being a minister of the gospel means more than just doing things for the church. It means being channels of God's grace to others. And the third truth about how God creates unity through maturity is that the goal of mutual ministry is maturity. That's the goal. In the last half of verse 12, Paul states that the ultimate goal for equipping the saints for ministry is this, that the body of Christ may be built up. Our spiritual gifts and the leadership offices of the church are not used for selfish ends. They are, all, they are the means for bringing the church to spiritual maturity. Where men and women are empowered for ministry, spiritual and physical needs are met, people's lives are changed, and ultimately, men and women are added to the kingdom of God. And how do we know if the body is being built up to maturity? What does that maturity look like? Well, Paul suggests, I think, three, three goals. They could be divided a little bit differently, but I think there are three. One is a unified set of convictions, one is full corporate maturity, and the other is individual Christ-likeness. We'll take a look at each one of these briefly. Growth in a unified set of convictions. You can look at verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 13. What Paul has in mind is a unity in the faith grounded in a common understanding of the core elements of the gospel. The same idea we see in Jude chapter 3, where it is described as the faith that was once and for all entrusted to the saints. So at the heart of this common confession is a correct understanding and knowledge of the Son of God. That is, who he is and what he has done. Almost every heresy in the church, there are some exceptions, 
But most of the key heresies in the church have to do with a misunderstanding of who Jesus is and what he's come to do for us. And so one mark of maturity is that we understand who he is and what he has done and the impact of that. An important part of ministry of, of gifted leaders in the church is to impart that knowledge, a knowledge essential to the unity of the church and its growth to maturity. The second goal of maturity, Paul describes as full corporate maturity. Now we tend to read almost every passage of the scriptures with an individualistic slant. It's just us, you know, the American way of doing things. I do it all the time, too. I read it, and I look at it, and I'm thinking most about what it says to me and about my relationship with God. But in this text, like a great many others, the writer is focusing on the church as a whole. That is, the entire body. Truth must go beyond what we know in our heads to inform our hearts. It must transform the way we think about life and how we behave, not just individually, but corporately. Just as an individual member of the body becomes increasingly more mature, the church also grows in corporate maturity. This is critically important, for as the church takes on the character of Jesus, it becomes a witness to the non-believing community. It becomes a beacon that draws men and women to the gospel. The degree that we walk in unity as the church is a demonstration to those looking in of the power and the relevance of the gospel. When I, was, when I was preparing for this sermon, I was convicted by the words of O'Brien, who has a commentary in the book of Ephesians. He said, to keep this unity must mean to maintain it visibly. If the unity of the Spirit is real, it must be transparently evident, and believers have a responsibility before God to make sure that, it, that this is so. To live in a manner which mars the unity of the Spirit is to do despite to the gracious, reconciling work of Christ. It is tantamount to saying that his sacrificial death, by which relationships with God and others have been restored, along with the resulting freedom of access to the Father, are of no real consequence to us. So when I went to Santa Cruz, California in the summer of 1976 as a student on a summer project, and I found out that I was, I was working during the, the day as a carpenter, and at night on the weekends I was working with a local youth group for the summer. When I got there and found out that that church had just recently gone through a split over something a little bit ridiculous, in my viewpoint, it marred the witness of that church in the community. I knew my, I knew my work was cut out for me because I already had one strike against me in the sense that it really basically said, we're so... We don't believe that the unity and transparency of the, of the, of the Spirit is that, is that real that we, wouldn't, that we would maintain that unity despite their, the differences of the color of the carpet or whatever it was they ended up splitting over. Finally, the third goal of maturity Paul describes is individual Christ-likeness. This is what we normally think of. Maturity occurs as we move beyond knowledge about Christ to becoming increasingly like him. This is a matter of the heart and occurs in the work of God's grace we call sanctification. As we're renewed more to Christ's image, we become increasingly victorious over sin in our lives and enabled to live more righteously, to reflect his virtue and likeness in our lives. Christ's likeness is an experiential knowledge of Christ that we attain by a deepening relationship with him through daily discipleship. It's the fruit of living out the truth we find in God's word day by day in fellowship with Christ. Truth which flows from the head through the heart, and out into the form of a life of obedient and loving service 
and mutual service to the Lord. The fourth truth from this text about how God creates unity through maturity is that maturity results in stability. I think one of the re almost every church split I've ever seen, it all goes back to their, uh, a lack of maturity in the body of Christ. It's someone, some group, not willing to be submissive to another party or group in the church, not willing to take the, the effort it, makes, it takes sometimes to have selfless love for one another. Arnold writes, without the firmness and stability that comes from growth stimulated by the ministry of the various members of the Christian community, believers are as vulnerable as a boat adrift on a stormy and tempestuous sea. They are totally at the mercy of the waves and the wind, which can carry them far off course. In other words, if we don't practice this unity, that's this, the maturity that's created through unity, we're, we're also subject to kind of the winds of, of false teaching out there. Paul is also concerned concerned about teaching that is contrary to the core beliefs of Christian faith and helping the church to become more deeply rooted in the primary doctrines of the faith is a concern of every leader in the church. Theology matters. Truth or the lack of it has consequences. Paul accuses false leaders and teachers of using trickery or even craftiness to lead people away from the truth of the gospel. And ultimately, that's what all false teaching does, as well as destroy the heart of true corporate unity in the body. We must confess the truth, not only individually, but as a body. And it's not a sterile confession of the truth, as if truth were only a set of propositional statements that we submit to. Again, Arnold writes, in this context, it conveys the more specific sense of accepting the truth of the gospel, speaking it out loud in the corporate gatherings of worship, talking about it with fellow believers, and upholding it firmly. Now, there's a tendency for Christians to defend the truth in ways that are not loving. Say it isn't so. I've done it. True truth, as Francis Schaeffer liked to call it, is always spoken in practice with love. Unless we're tempted to try to work this out on our own power, Paul also reminds us in verse 15 and 16 that not only is Christ the gift giver, he is also the empowering source of their use. As one commentator puts it, God gives us both the grace and the faith to energize whatever gifts he gives to the full intent of his purpose. The Lord facilitates the body's growth through the use of the gifts he sovereignly bestows on each one of us in the church. It is his plan for the church. He is their source. Therefore, to deny these gifts and their proper use is to deny the, the, the God, God's grace and the power of Christ's resurrection. Remember what I told you at the beginning that you should take away with you this morning. Unity comes through maturity in Christ, and that maturity comes as the body of Christ is built, through, built up through gifted leaders who equip every member to use their grace gifts in mutual ministry. We must see ourselves as vital channels through whom God mediates his grace to other members of his body and to the community around us. Being a minister of the gospel means more than doing things, like I said, for the church. It means being a channel of God's grace to others. Now, if you're a non-believer here this morning, it's possible, as the author of Hebrews puts it, to taste the heavenly gifts and yet not fully experience them. That is, you can get some benefit from your involvement in the church, but you will never experience the full impact of the grace-empowered mutual ministry of the church of Jesus Christ that flows out of our union with him until you first come to personal faith in him. You can, you can be on the edges looking in, but never quite get there. 
If you're a believer, I'll leave you with this challenge. I firmly believe that God has given grace covenant every gifted person needed to fulfill its mission in God's kingdom without a few people feeling burdened, overburdened, or overworked. The problem is that we have too many unopened gifts in the church. I mean, I visually think of it this way. It's like all of us are packages, you know, wrapped up, sitting in those chairs with a little tag on it that says, to the church, with love, from Jesus. But unlike an inanimate gift, which just simply sits there and waits to be opened, we are living gifts. We can choose to be unwrapped, to use our gifts for the glory of God, to seek to be equipped to mutually minister to one another in, in the gospel. Are you ready to make that commitment? Seek to be equipped, to grow in maturity, so that the body of Christ may be built up. Remember, there's only one priesthood, one ministry, and each one of us is called to it. May God give us the grace to hear and respond to his call so that we can mutually minister to one another with the gifts and abilities that God has given us so the church can reach its full maturity and stature in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is true, I know in my life many times, that I uh, deny the gifts that you've given me or I get to that point in my life where I feel like I have nothing really to offer. And yet, Father, you have told us in your word today as we've studied it together that each one of us has been given gifts through your spirit to allow us to mutually minister to one another so that we might be built up, not just individually, but corporately together as a body. Give us the grace to see that and to pursue it, both individually and as a body, for we ask in Christ's name. Amen.